1: Welcome back to episode two, which is part two of my chat with critical care paramedic Scott Hardy. If you haven't heard part one yet, it might be worth just nipping back and listening to that first. Before we get into it, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone that's listened so far. It's been really humbling to get such a good response this early on and great to hear people's feedback on Twitter and Facebook and online. So yeah, thanks for that and keep it coming. Lastly, if you haven't already, please do subscribe. We're now available on Apple and Spotify, as well as on our new site, um, which you can find at ccnpp.org forward slash podcast. I'll put the link to all of those in the show notes. Um, And that's it for now. Right, let's crack on with part two so listen moving on i wonder if we could briefly um discuss a case i attended around a foreign body airway obstruction and kind of get your thoughts on on that and and management and some some advice on how people could manage a similar situation yes certainly um so very briefly i attended a a patient recently who um the the call came in as a choking and on arrival um it transpired that this patient had been eating some food um Seems or appeared to start choking, and then collapsed yeah. and ultimately stopped breathing. Okay. As I went through my airway management, um, it became clear on, from from my assessment and early attempts at management that there was an obstruction to ventilation. And ultimately, I uh, used laryngoscopy to try and visualise the larynx to to view the obstruction and found that there was some kind of chewed bread uh, proximal to the vocal cords that I was able to remove with suction and some um, forcep use. But then there's quite a significant amount of kind of this chewed up mushed bread beyond distal to the vocal cords and in the trachea, which presented a bit of a problem for me um, because I've not dealt with a significant amount of chokings in my time. And as a undergraduate I kind of naively believed that a l- laryngoscope and McGills would be the kind of extent of what I needed to deal with these cases. Yeah. However, I find I found myself having to um I guess be a bit dynamic in my approach and use interventions that I hadn't really drilled properly um in my practice yeah. to try and remove that obstruction. And ultimately it involved um some f- I- I ended up having to pass a tube and then suction through the tube yeah. and then replace that tube as it became sold. And it became a kind of dynamic complex process that I guess I wasn't really expecting. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could kind of comment on that and, and your experience and some kind of advice for others that might be in that situation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Doing that and that does sound like a, like a, an absolute terror of a job. Um, and so and I've, and I've no doubt that you've, you've managed that and the team very well, but um, the, it's a difficult one isn't it foreign body air obstruction of course is a is is not an is not an uncommon cause of airway devastation and 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 the sad reality of that is of course it's it's not uncommon similarly in our younger cohorts of patients which is an absolute travesty when 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 you've got a foreign body air obstruction within the pharynx themselves you know a large obstruction then that's one thing we 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 definitely can manage that Again, not even for, forgetting simple things like positional change roll the patient over onto them sides get, uh, get you know get, you know, kind of manually clear it but also suction in the McGill's if we're moving down further into the airway as you say we, we're then becoming more of a problem if you're if you're intraglottic then then there's still an option there to try and retrieve with things like McGill's or of course if that isn't if that isn't successful then there's still an option for us to provide A cricothy, you know, a cricothyroidotomy coming through either with a needle or a or a surgical procedure because because it's infraglottic. Your 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 job there sounded like you had viewed through the cords and can see within the trachea the obstruction and and that's where we really do have to think for extenuating circumstances. For me, what I would do, and I don't, and this is this is desperate times on desperate measures now. If we if we're subglottic. Um, then what i would do on that is is this isn't by definition a can't intubate can't ventilate or can't oxygenate patient that's not what this is because you you in fact can intubate you have done that and so it doesn't meet that criteria in real money what what i would do is take the uh take the uh tube uh, with a with an introducer either the bougie or, or or a malleable stylet depending on where you work and how you work and i would consciously uh drive that under direct vision in, through the glottic inlet and I would pass it the full length of the endotracheal tube uh, down, trying to drive through into what I would imagine would most commonly fall into the right main stem bronchus and then would retract back up uh, to a, a normal, appropriate length. And I would do all of that under direct vision. And so I would maintain my laryngoscopy and eyes on to drive, as a natural procedure, drive down the trachea the length of the ET tube and then withdraw back up to the the, the, the length that should be, um, so the cuff is seated comfortably below the cords. And then, as you say, you, you've you then got an option to suction through, but also, hopefully, you've allowed some movement through to the left lung. And of course, that's going to have some significant physiological effects and the fact that we're going to have a significant VQ mismatch. However, the patient will aerate one lung, uh, and you are not, in Shangri-La you are in a nightmarish place and you have to do uh, significant measures when there are significant problems
2: yeah
1: I think that's that's a kind of useful thing to discuss um, so I found although the the process I went through wasn't as clear as that um, but I, that is one thing I tried so initially like so I, I passed the tube I was able to kind of visualize the chords and place the tube and um, I was confident that I placed the tube Uh, in the right place however i wasn't because of the obstruction i wasn't getting end tidal co2 back which was making me feel a bit uncomfortable and because i wasn't getting that kind of physiological
0: it should make you feel
1: uncomfortable confirmation exactly so initially i I passed a soft soft tip suction catheter down the tube and was able to suction something up which kind of gave me the idea that actually the the lack of co2 might be due to the obstruction rather than misplacement of the of the tube and then i did pass the tube a bit further down to try and kind of move or break up the obstruction and withdraw it and i found from then that the tube had actually become occluded with the um the, the kind of food and i then removed that tube and replaced it and the second tube was effective yeah and and the technique i did um i used to to replace the tube was by railroading over the bougie yes um, so I wonder if you've got any experience in that, and, wh- and what your thoughts are on that technique of using a bougie not just for intubation, but actually to replace
0: as a tube change.
1: Yeah, yeah, to, yeah, exactly. As a, as a tube change to to change one that's maybe not effective.
0: No, no, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, no, I do, and uh, and I think there's a that, that's a moment there, isn't it? Because um, because there's a moment of real reflection there that that you, you that you had, you were, and you should have consciously been considering: Am I in the wrong place? i think it's paramount that, that that we should be consciously saying no trace wrong place if if i don't have a capnogram come back in uh, in any element then i have to be strongly asking myself is this correctly cited and it sounds like you did do that and reconfirmed that um i, I think you're right i think pushing down to to try and uh, to try and ventilate the left lung after you've forced a forced a, a, a subglottic um, obstruction into the into the right mainstem bronchus. That's that's really your your main get out of jail there. I think if you've I think it, I think it was I think it was a sign of the times. I, I think you would do that differently now. If you if you had cited a, an ET tube into the trachea and you had got zero CO two back, you've got none. Then I don't think knowing you now, I don't think that today you you would in any way suggest that placing a uh, ten or sixteen French soft catheter suction would in any way make that better, uh, because you don't have you don't have a little bit of secretion uh, that's causing your capnogram to be a little pyramid like. You've got you've got zero CO two. This is a large fundamental airway problem, and the and the ten and sixteen French uh, suction catheter is not going to help you with that. So I think that on, on, on reflection and with with that experience, you wouldn't that that step would be mitigated and so yeah so what i what i would do i think you're right um i think you know if you've if you've got the tube which has become blocked as you move down then that's something you the, the, the um you know is a complication that's the that's the that's the unfortunate deal what i would do is is if i if i believed which it sounded like you had been uh, already believing that you'd had a a subglottic Uh, airway obstruction it sounded like you'd already gained that information even if you hadn't have processed it consciously yet and so what i would do is if i if i'd highlighted that as the probable cause as i take my original intubation my original delivery either via the bougie or the malleable stylet then i would at that moment i would and i'd say at that moment because now i've still got the introducer within the lumen of the of the et tube that may and i'm not saying it will but it may offer you some subtle defense to it becoming fully occluded subsequently because you've got a tool within the 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 device at that moment i would drive down uh, looking drive down up to the you know, up to the connector with with your hand and, and then back up again so that you're, uh, you've taken that first single opportunity. And that's on the premise that you've already got high suspicion of this is what the problem is. If you haven't, then yeah, doing what you would do, exactly what I would do. Don't offer yourself starting from the beginning again. You've already sighted a, a well-placed tracheal tube and overcome all of the complexities that it took to get there. So definitely use that bougie for a tube change if you have to uh, because it's it's a placeholder isn't it it's a perfect placeholder and it's the yellow brick road you know if you if you if you use the laryngoscope to come back down don't forget you must do that you can't just simply put the bougie down the tube and pull it out and not expect the soft tissues to collapse around you if you recite the the laryngoscope place the bougie down the tube and then bring that one out and exchange it for another you've already got yourself a way home uh, and now what you're doing is actually just visually confirming that you are where you are rather than trying to find your way
1: yeah cheers i think i think that's really useful to go over because like i say and and it was the first time i've dealt with a case of that complexity um and i was again I was kind of working reactively and not from something that I'd, I kind of drilled well so it's something I've reflected on and and like you say some some points I've taken from that reflectively but I think it's it's a useful one to discuss and and hopefully share with people because like I say I was never really prepared for that through my undergraduate studies and, and my early experience as a paramedic and I, I wonder if that's just something that's maybe I don't know not discussed or or you know not considered a lot.
0: But the language you've used there, Silas, is perfect. Is that it is it is complexity. Uh, delivering intubation effectively and safely for the provider and more importantly for the patient is complex. And and when you look at, when you look at the the original, kind of there's some wonderful work, you know, not even newly done. Back 2002. some wonderful, a wonderful paper written by Glauberman and Zimmerman out in Canada on on types of problems, simple problems, complicated problems, and complex problems. Uh, Et intubation is unequivocally complicated, and and what our job is is to break it down into more simple problems, and we can do that with checklists, but we can also do that by breaking down the areas of you, your patient, and your equipment, and having little plans as to what you'll do for each of those three different areas.
1: Yeah, I like it, and touching back on what seems to be the theme of this. Um this chat and I guess the hopefully the underlying theme of, of our job is is just like you say, breaking stuff down to, to what is more simple and therefore what you can do most easily and effectively for people. Sweet. Right. Thanks that, Scott. So, um, kind of moving forward then, I just wanted to touch briefly on trauma. Um, I know kind of like I've mentioned before, generally when we talk about airway management, um, it's often in the context of cardiac arrest, sometimes in the context of medical loss of consciousness. Um, but I know, it, it's, I think it's useful to talk about trauma. We we know major trauma cases are relatively uncommon in standard ambulance kind of caseload. Um, but I think these are the patients that have potential for some really complicated airway needs. Um, so, yeah, I wonder if we could discuss some of the kind of pertinent aspects within that.
0: Yeah, sure, absolutely. And,
1: uh, thank you. So the first point I wanted to kind of touch on is this pervasive uh, conversation, discussion people have around nasopharyngeal airways in the context of head injury.
0: Okay. Okay, what about the fear of using them?
1: Yeah, because I think guidelines have changed over the years and uh, rumours again have changed also. So there's still some people consider it's uh, contraindicated in head injury some say it's, it's a caution. Okay. I just wonder what your thoughts are on on really the evidence yes. and the logic
0: behind those conversations. Perfect. No, absolutely. So that's that's a nice one because it's short and it's sweet. So MPA waves are most certainly not contraindicated in head injury. Uh, MPA ways are a fabulous tool to provide a a, a laminar passage of airflow. Uh, overcoming the the normal anatomy and the the concha the turbinates of the nose and upper airway so they they should be used when necessary to facilitate a patent airway, we know that loss of a patent airway and subsequent desaturation in a head injury has devastating effects on both morbidity and mortality. So, so we we're looking at that. There, you're definitely right. You know there are, and we still hear these things. Just stay around, don't they? Like like folklore. You know that there, there are, and, and and to the best of my knowledge, there are three case studies or three case reports that 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 show um, nasopharyngeal airway insertion. Um, into into the the cranium uh, one of those were back in 1991 another one in 2000 and then the last one London 2006 I think there was a, a some really uh, meaningful uh, parts of all of those case series number one is that all of those showed that the patient was unable to be uh, ventilated with an effective airway with less invasive, Care. And to, um, and I mean that in context of the provider who was on scene at that time. And so I think that's really important about risk stratification. Is that the people who had delivered that piece of device, they had they had already attempted less invasive care, and it wasn't successful. That's one part. The second part, which is more pertinent, is that all of those case reports showed that this was most likely because of inappropriate use of the device. And what I mean by that is the trajectory of which we place all of those work their way through the cribriform plate which lies at the base of the skull up up kind of at the top of the nose so if you'd imagine uh, driving upwards uh, to your nose up towards your your kind of eye sockets uh, that's the cribriform plate that that runs across the, the bottom of the skull at no point has there any been has there ever been any finding where an appropriately sighted nasopharyngeal so across the floor of the nose down into the face down towards the back of the head has, has has or would go anywhere near the cranium or entering into the skull and so i don't want people and i don't think anyone should be fearful in 2020 of using nasopharyngeal airways i think we should be really conscious because if the patient's got uh you know a, a facial injury then it may increase things like bleeding um that that's definitely certainly if they if they had an injury and it started to clot then it could increase bleeding but regarding the specific head injury uh and and entering the the, the cranium that's just not a thing if we're using those devices the way that, that we are meant to be and so no not 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 something to be fearful of
1: yeah and no, i appreciate that um and and discussing the the technique of placement i think is really important as well and uh, for me i kind of the way I kind of think of that is is like you say, A A, B, C, D for a reason and you you need a patent airway to minimize um kind of disability and neurological problems down the line. So so there's that kind of consideration. Um and yeah, I think the other point that you kind of touched on and is really one to emphasise is that is that kind of responsive care. So when you if you're in my practice, if I'm inserting a nasopharyngeal airway, I'll do it carefully and um kind of considered and if i do hit an obstruction or there's some kind of bleeding associated with that then maybe think again and look at some other kind of options because um you know you don't want to just kind of drive on and force an airway in and cause some trauma and if if you do hit an obstruction there's nothing stopping just kind of pulling the airway out and, and maybe using something else Ab- if you can
0: absolutely yes if you come up against an obstruction that isn't that isn't so easily and gently managed by maybe some gentle rotation uh, of the device, then, then absolutely yeah, come away and look at the next device.
1: Okay. So next question then, um, I know there's the often quoted kind of six indications for pre-hospital RSI that you see in, in various kind of, uh, types of literature and, and crash checklists and things. Um, I think RSI is obviously a kind of complex subject and one that we could talk about a lot. Um, but for the, uh, the the kind of the the non-specialist paramedic or, or you know even specialist paramedics who who aren't providing RSI, um, such as those of us in the UK, um, I think it's useful to have some kind of idea around when an RSI is appropriate, um, because clearly although we're not providing that intervention, it's often us as ambulance staff who have to request an enhanced care team um, to to provide that intervention. Yeah. So I think it's a useful one to be aware of, and I wonder if you could just um, give me your thoughts on on when do you think an, a trauma patient is appropriate for an RSI yes. and what might be some indicators of when we should request an enhanced care team
0: yeah no absolutely thank you and I, so that's a, so that's an interesting one isn't it because when they so so when when are they indicated for an RSI that's a that's an infinite question. Whether they indicated for a pre-hospital RSI? Now that's a slightly more nuanced one. You're absolutely right. Yeah, you're,
1: that's it. That's a good point. Yeah.
0: Just because you know, just because a patient, and, and the reason I say that is because one of the one of the commonly seen indications is is expected clinical course. And so if the patient is going to go on to receive a care and you're able to deliver it to them now, well then maybe just do it. Um, and and uh, and that's a that's a that's an indication that is frequently used um and so that that necessarily doesn't always hold true it, it may hold true if the patient can receive uh, just as safe or arguably safer care uh, where you are now than where they're going to and that has been seen and that that, that is seen uh, i know that i know that you know certainly places like london air ambulance are, are exquisitely proficient at delivering that care and so their safety profile is extraordinary and congratulations to them but i think otherwise we need to be very measured in our approach here the 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 point of the trauma patient is that the reason why we're delivering the 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 intubation is so that we can maintain gas exchange Uh, that that's the goal and it's still the goal because otherwise the sequelae of a loss of that gas exchange means that the patient's morbidity and mortality increases, and so the question is simple here, is twofold. Number one, can you and the team who are with you currently safely and effectively maintain patency of the airway uh, airway for gas exchange? If you can, okay. Well, then let's just take a moment to think about what what we what we uh, need on top of that now the other way of uh, of questioning that is 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 not forgetting that there are two ways to get help to the patient either either the, uh, the help comes to you or you go to the help and so we have to again be so very conscious of the fact that not only the question i'm asking is does my patient need more proficient gas exchange than what i'm currently offering and if that question is yes they do Well, then I need to ask myself a second question. Is is that going to be provided more quickly waiting here for a team to come to me or for me to go to the help at the hospital? And of course, we have to be conscious when we think about that, that, that time to the front door doesn't equal time to gas exchange. And so we can't just take that decision on our drive time. But we do have to be conscious that we can't hold scenes with a polytrauma patient or a, or a head injury patient with a, with a surgical emergency where we're actually we're already providing safe and effective gas exchange. And also the hospital team's provision of better care is equal or lesser time than the provision of care pre-hospitally. And so that's for for me, when does my patient need an RSI? I don't want to look at the the, the, all of the questions that come, have they got an actual or impending airway compromise? Are they got respiratory failure? Are they unable to protect their airway? Let's not worry about those things. Let's ask two questions. Number one, can I safely and effectively gain and maintain patency of this airway to allow gas exchange? If the answer is yes, then great. If the answer is no, then is, is it quicker and more safe for me to go to help or for help to come to me? And those are the two questions. If, if those questions are met with, a, with a, a yes, I need more help and yes, the help will be more quickly provided here, then the patient is due an RSI.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. And I, I think there's some really interesting points. And there's something that I always emphasise at any point that I can in, in pre hospital critical care is that, that point that you've kind of succinctly made there of um knowing when is appropriate to take a patient to definitive care or to, to further care rather than waiting for, for someone to meet you there. And I think it's always it's it's always great to bear in mind that um you can have that consideration of taking a patient to hospital and and not waiting for an enhanced care team, um, because the interventions you are providing may be sufficient to get you there, and actually extending that uh, that that period of time on scene may not be beneficial, even if you are waiting for enhanced care. Yeah, and I I think the second point from that is this concept of um, meeting people en route. Yeah. Um, which is just such an important kind of thing to consider i guess isn't it you you can always you might know that a patient needs an enhanced intervention that you can't provide um, and that they might be able to get that before you can get to hospital yeah. if that enhanced care team is coming from the other side of the hospital there's nothing to stop you driving towards that more definitive place of care and meeting someone en route because there's always chances that with the weather and traffic etc there's there's situations in which that enhanced care team may try to get to you but not be able to and then you're kind of back to square one for want of a better phrase
0: no i completely agree with you, silas you're absolutely right that rendezvous if it, if it if the geography naturally marries up then that's wonderful not not just because the, the they might provide the advanced care that you were you were imagining but also just having that support as a team for the for the leadership and for the support as the uh, you know, to, to to the patient holistically, there might be other things that we we hadn't thought of, or or things that we weren't kind of in our target at that moment. And so, those RVPs, those rendezvous, are are, are fabulous.
1: Fine. Next, if we could move on, then um, powering through to a, a brief discussion around out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Um, I know we've kind of touched on cardiac arrest before, but I think. Um, No pre hospital airway discussion is complete without um, kind of specific consideration of the context of cardiac arrest. So I guess how my question would be, how, how do you incorporate a a methodical, effective airway approach into your stepwise management of an out of of hospital cardiac arrest?
0: So for me, so for me, that that's, um, that's a simple one. I want to, at the beginning of a cardiac arrest scenario, I want to provide the the most rapidly uh, accessible uh, patent airway, so that I can really concentrate for the for the for the quintessential resuscitation. So I can really concentrate on those exquisite precordial compressions and appropriate defibrillation. And so I want to I want to early achieve a patent airway that I can that can I can almost kind of let let run and just let to its own device. I don't have to. Provide too much thought of if it's a quintessential resuscitation, and, and possibly shockable, and so and so for me, providing the least invasive care for gas exchange is is a great thing for that. I'm gonna I'm gonna go even even slimmer than that and say, listen, I think that that we should be using, as as was found, you know, in in uh, in the Airways Two trial, uh, the the extra devices, and for for the UK, that would most commonly rightly be the I gel. Um, I think that we should use those devices freely not just because they're so accessible and they're so easily sighted you would argue that that second on second to place an igel is identical to a, a norepharyngeal airway and so and so they're incredibly fast really very reliable and it's as we said earlier the single last remaining solo operative piece of equipment and so that means that in our invariably resource limited pre-hospital teams we've got other people to really concentrate on those life-changing care of pre compressions defibrillation what i think is important sorry so I don't, and, and i don't know what your thoughts are what i think is important is it's not in any way suggesting that intra-arrest uh, intubation is in some way beelzebub of resuscitation i i, I don't this is certainly not the devil uh, what's important is if if it if you're going to provide uh, an intubation intra arrest that cannot that cannot be a rushed rescue and stressed intervention it cannot be that because that will only harm the patient it will only harm the patient if you're going to provide intubation during colic arrest however that is a that is a planned team based intervention After you have supplied uh, oxygen and you are supplying oxygen and there are reasons or rationales that you've chose to deliver the patient uh, an intubation, then so long as that is uh, done by somebody who is incredibly effective and proficient at this skill and it is done as a planned, calm, team-based approach, well, then that's, that's not offensive to me.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a great point. And it's I'm glad you bring that up about the when it is appropriate to provide an intubation. I think, um certainly in, in my practice that's that's something I would do. I'd I think in an out of hospital cardiac arrest, first firstly, and obviously it changes as you assess a patient, but the statistics are very much in favour of it being a, a cardiogenic cause or something not associated with a with a primary airway problem. And therefore, most airway complications are secondary to being in cardiac arrest so providing a simple or something like an eye gel which is requires less time concentration and, and team members to to care for it and um, to allow people to provide um, more directed focused care on on the reversible cause that you're faced with I think is is really important and you know it, that's not to say like, like you've mentioned that Patients may, in their physiological course, need um, a more uh, kind of advanced airway, such as intubation. But, like you say, that that can be delivered at a point when you've established good, effective chest compressions and defibrillation, and if indicated, um, drug uh, administration. Um, and once you've you've kind of established that advanced life support care, and there's a bit more headspace for people to concentrate on a really focused intubation. I think that's the appropriate time to do i definitely agree um and the next point that kind of leads me on to i guess and it goes back to the appropriate device for the physiology is um i guess being comfortable in assessing a patient and deciding that they don't need to be intubated for their care and often as as is um in in the kind of paramedic scope of practice um, once providing uh, effective advanced life support often we reach a point where it's no longer ethically appropriate to continue that resuscitation attempt and we have to kind of accept and be comfortable with the um, withdrawing treatment and accepting that the person has passed away in that situation um, I think personally and I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this um, we can be comfortable that we've withdrawn treatment and uh, declared life extinct in a situation where we haven't escalated the airway to the point of intubation
0: absolutely yes a hundred percent what do you remember the goal and we said that at the beginning of, of this discussion and we'll say it until the very end advanced life support is a funny little creature listen as 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 many of us are uh one of one of the things i do is is, is advanced life support teaching um and and i and the whole point is, is that you is that you follow a set it's, it's algorithmic life support, isn't it? You follow a, a set run for the majority of patients, and then you tailor the care needs to truly make that life support advanced. It's not the the advanced portion of life support isn't an algorithm. It's about the specific person needs in front of you, and when you're looking to uh, to deliver a, a certain system care so airway breathing circulation you ask yourselves at the beginning of the of the of the journey what is my goal for the airway and breathing your goal was to aerate their lung for gas exchange and using things like capnography means that you can definitely assess that Uh, and if you have used the eye gel or in fact if the patient for whatever reason didn't suit the eye gel and you came back to exquisite positioning uh, simple adjuncts and, uh, and you know, exquisite bag mask ventilation with capnography assessment and documentation, then that is also appropriate. Patients don't need plastic within their trachea to deliver great care. There are some patients who do need that, but that doesn't mean that you're defined by it.
1: Fine, thanks for that, Scott. So, so moving on, the last point I'd really like to discuss is... Um... The topic of paramedic intubation. Um, I appreciate this is quite a UK centric discussion to have but one that I think is pertinent to a lot of a lot of potential listeners. Um, so to make sure we're all up to the same uh, speeds and to give a brief background for those maybe that don't um, fully appreciate the kind of the background literature and things. Um, since the 90s tracheal intubation during out-of-hospital cardiac arrest has been in the, in, like I say, the UK paramedic skill set. Um, However, more recently has become a subject of quite a lot of debate. Um, a number of studies have found paramedics to be less successful at tracheal intubation than physicians. And with the advent of safe um, supraglottic airways, and we've mentioned the eye gel and uh, predominantly, but also laryngeal mask airways, um, and the significant risk of harm associated with tracheal intubation when misplaced. Um, this has kind of led a lot of people to question whether it's still appropriate for paramedics to retain this skill. Um, So in 2008, JR Calc published a reassessment of Ambulance Service Airway Management and concluded within that, that again with the advent of these supraglottic airways, um, tracheal intubation was no longer a necessary core skill for paramedics and should be developed as a specialist skill for certain providers. Um, Shortly following that publication, uh, London Ambulance Service withdrew routine, routine training for tracheal intubation and um, it remained a skill for their clinical team leaders and their advanced paramedic practitioners in the uh, special t- speciality of critical care. Um, more recently, then, in 2018, um, the College of Paramedics published a consensus statement on this topic, in which they identified that um, a kind of significant variation between organisations in the education, training, and competence of practitioners um, who would provide tracheal intubation. And they concluded, amongst other kind of points, that um, those that continue to provide intubation should maintain an annual airway log. And at minimum, this should contain two tracheal intubations per month for each patient group that the practitioner is qualified to um, provide intubation to, including infants, children and adults. And that can be in simulation or practice. However, it does equate to a minimum of 72 tracheal intubations per year if you're providing that level of care to all those age groups. Um, And in addition to this, they kind of outline standards for education, equipment and ongoing clinical governance. Um, since this publication, other trusts throughout the UK have withdrawn tracheal intubation from non-specialist paramedic practice. Um, But meanwhile, other services retain the skill. Um, And as I understand, there's kind of variation that continues in, in how that's governed and taught. So I wonder what your thoughts are on, on this kind of topic of paramedics intubating um, and where we kind of stand with it nationally and, and how you think things should move in the future.
0: Yeah, thanks, uh, Silas.
1: Just a simple question for you there, mate.
0: <laughs> I, I want you to understand when I say thanks, I really mean the opposite of thanks. <laughs> that is, that is, uh, that's one hell of a question. Um, so listen, I'm going to be honest with you and say I'm, I, my, I am torn my head and my heart here and I have been since uh, since since the beginning I so say I was uh you know I was uh an old an old IHCD medic uh that originally trained with a very different perspectives to now but I my heart my 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 paramedic heart says yes yeah, sure paramedics should have intubation uh, as an accessible tool um because it's uh, there are certain patient cohorts where it really can make a difference and it really should be an option um and then my head says something different my my head um looks at uh looks at the the work that i can see in my in my workplace with colleagues that are suffering difficulty uh, occasionally providing that care safely, and uh, and uh, and are and are stressed about it, and are worried about it, and I look at literature like the Airways Two, that showed uh, that 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 there was a seventy nine percent success of intubation after two attempts. It did not publish its first pass attempt. I was I was desperately trying to scratch through for that from from the moment it got published. And when we couple that with the PART trial, which was the American version, still again in 2018, which was intubation versus the King retroglottic device, um, that, that again, that had a 51.6% first pass success of intubation with over over 20% of their patients requiring three or more attempts. And that's just devastating. And I, And I don't say that in any way to to put ourselves down uh, or, or to put our colleagues down. Uh, because I know for a fact that there are some uh, ambulance paramedics that provide stunning, stunning care. The problem is is that what what we can't have is a mismatch of the, the quality or the education or the delivery. And what I mean by that is that it can't be a roll of a dice. As if we're going to have a professional skill, then it has to be delivered across the profession in a exquisite way. And I don't even want us to aim for competency because I know a lot of those um, papers and, and 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 publications talk about airway competency. You should be competent on the day that you leave university, right? The day you come out, day one, you are competent because you've got you you've been signed off to to be the minimum level of safe and that is what competence is what we need for people that intubate and continue their intubation journey from now onwardly is we need them to be proficient We, we don't need competency we need them to excel in delivering that safely and and not only delivering it safely but also reviewing it professionally as a service as a system as a profession so that we can ensure the patients are getting great care because what we what we've seen over the years is that is that we 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 historically we've defined ourselves our profession we've defined what a paramedic is by our interventions and I remember vividly you know when you when you did when I did my original I I my intubation infusion training and heaven forbid this you know we're still walking around with our miller badge on our arm our little miller patch you know and, and and we defined ourselves by the pieces of metal and plastic that we did. And that's because we did the best that we know. But we know so much more now. Now what we're saying is, is should it be a core skill in a paramedic profession if we're unable to prove that we can deliver it safely, efficiently, proficiently? Well, then we have to ask ourselves a question there. And especially on the fact that we are now ask our goal. The goalposts of change. because we're not asking those simple questions about pieces of equipment. We're now asking physiological questions. Can I safely aerate the aeration of the lung? Can I safely provide gas exchange? And if I've got tools that do do that, and I can prove that they do do that, then I then I then I don't need the risks associated with the other skills. And that doesn't mean that I don't think that we should, uh, and in fact, I think it's paramount that if for whatever reason services have or, or continue to reduce the intubation uh, members of staff in the services or, or, the, or the role of that within the people providing it, what we cannot do is reduce our competency and subsequent proficiency of using the laryngoscope beautifully. Because of course, providing laryngoscopy for things like foreign body airway retrieval um they still have to be core ambulance work and so i think to deliver a piece of plastic within the trachea so that you can provide gas exchange that's one question but i think to use those tools so that you can still provide gas exchange that's a different question I mean, we have to ask ourselves the question is, can we as a profession, not as individuals, because I know that some of the individuals provide that care beautifully, can we as a profession provide and prove that we're doing that safely for the patients that need us?
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree with all those points. And I think um, the, the point you make that I think is, is really kind of pertinent is that difference between a profession and the capabilities of an individual and i think like you say i'm 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 newer to the profession um and i have less experience and i've joined at a time when um, the paramedic profession is expanding and developing rapidly but i know now is different to what it was maybe 10 20 years ago in that we have uh specialities within the profession and we work as a profession in a, in a lot of different contexts so you know, like you and I, a paramedic may be seeing a lot of patients that require airway intervention as part of our routine job, whereas people in other specialities or employed by non-ambulance trusts might be seeing patients with complex kind of minor injuries, um, but very rarely are in a situation where they have to look after an airway. And so I think it's it's no longer appropriate to say that one profession has to maintain this core list of skills. Um, to, to kind of identify them and actually maybe it's time to recognise that that within our profession we're individuals working in specific areas and kind of as our regulator as the HCPC says in, in its standards that you know as we develop in different areas of specialty we'll develop more skills in one area and maybe lose skills and knowledge in another and I think it's important to just to kind of accept that and and maybe the, the question about intubation kind of goes with that.
0: Yeah, I hear you. From my perspective, listen, and again, I just want to kind of finish on language as well. But I genuinely believe that our language is imperative here. I think it's imperative when we speak to each other and when we speak to patients and when we speak to our loved ones. And I and I, I, think that, listen, no, nobody's talking about um, removing skills because this is different. And, and again, people can say that's semantics and I'm happy with that. The, the skill is choosing Uh, and and providing uh, physiological benefit to a patient. That is skillful, and it takes so much work as a team to do that. That doesn't mean that you have to have every intervention available to achieve that. The skill is about identifying what is needed and providing it. And what's needed is gas exchange in the lung, and we can provide that. That doesn't mean that we need every intervention
1: yeah, no, I think that's a fair point, and um, I was I was actually getting a bit concerned that we'd got this far on, and you hadn't corrected any of my language for a while, so I appreciate that. I'm
0: trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to behave. What I, do, I tell you, what just on that note, just as a light-hearted part, what I did notice, and I know that we spoke about that previously, not even not now uh, over over our time together, is that when we were speaking earlier about about terminating efforts of resuscitation, you were very clear on saying that we were with, withdrawing treatment and we were not withdrawing care that 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 uh, that's such a different thing
1: mate and that's and that's something learnt from the best and shared with many i can assure you but um no no i think i think the joking aside those those points are important and because it, it, it kind of does it changes the way you you think about um care for patients as well as just how you talk about it i suppose so no i appreciate that and and thanks for the the comments on what may be considered quite a difficult question to answer Mate, I really appreciate you having a chat with me. That kind of concludes all the, all the questions I had and, and things I wanted to talk about. Um, as I said before, I think there's, there's loads more we could discuss and uh, maybe in the future we could have some, some chats about more specifics within, within airway management. And I'm sure if I gave you the chance, you'd be more than happy to discuss capnography.
0: Mate, I'd enjoy that very much on another day.
1: Mate, that'd be great. Um, just before we kind of tie up, is there anything else you'd like to add on, on the subject? Um, any kind of final comments?
0: Listen, just for me. Obviously, the, the final comments for me, uh, just because I think it's poignant for the time that we're speaking to one another, is that we're we're in a we're in a respiratory pandemic, and if you're in a position where you're providing airway care, subsequent ventilation care, do me a favour, look after yourselves, um, use use your protective equipment and your powerful powerful mind to keep yourself safe, look after your teams, uh, and we'll uh, we'll get over this together
1: mate great comments really appreciate that and um yeah thanks for taking the time to to speak with me i really appreciate it um and yeah look forward to speaking again in the future cheers mate. all right so that concludes my discussion with scott hardy around airway management and pre-hospital care um i hope you guys found that useful i I certainly know i I learned some really interesting points from that Um, and so i just want to say another really big thank you to scott for coming on and sharing his knowledge and and learning with us Um, for those of you that haven't already please do subscribe like I say we're on Apple and Spotify now um, and I've got a host website and the link for which I'll stick in the notes and if there's any other apps that people use to listen to their podcast please just give give us an email or or tweet us or whatever and and just let us know what that is um, and I'll look at making sure we're available on those platforms in the future uh, finally just thanks again to my friend Jack Newman who is a sound recordist and has given me some great advice around recording tips and um, as well as uh, lending me the equipment that I use to record this um, so I'll put a link to his page uh, again in the notes and yeah if anyone wants to get some advice or or, or get some um hit him up for anything then I'll definitely recommend him getting in touch um, and so that's it for now. Um, please do keep an eye on the, on the Twitter and Facebook streams um, just to see what kind of topics we're going to discuss in the future. Um, yeah, and I look forward to speaking to you soon.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.